Just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you. We ask for your guidance and, and leading as we open your word and we study the year of the Jew, Jubilee. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Leviticus chapter 25, starting at verse 1. And the Lord spoke unto Moses in Mount Sinai, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you come into the land which I give you, then shall you keep the land then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyards and gather in, in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. That rich grows of, it, of its own accord in your harvest. You shall not reap, neither gather the grapes of your vine un, 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 undressed. For it is the year of rest unto the land, and the Sabbath of the land shall be meat for you, for you and your servant, and for your maid, and for your hired servant, and for your stranger that sojourns with you, and for your cattle, and for your beast, and for they that are in the land shall all increase there uh, be meat. So we're going to look at this right now. We're going to start with the Sabbath. Notice first off, we're still at Mount Sinai. Okay? Uh, the children of Israel get to spend 13 months in Mount Sinai from the time they get there to the, uh, well, excuse me, 13 months from the time they leave Egypt to the time they're going to leave Mount Sinai. We've been in Mount Sinai for a lot longer as we're teaching this than they've been there, or that, that they were there, so, but they're still there, okay? And until we get into numbers, they're going to be in Mount Sinai, and, um, it's just kind of interesting that they that they spent that that much time there and they're being taught to be a people they're being taught how they're going to worship god they're going to be taught how to the the, the feast how the and what the the priests are supposed to do and what they're going to do when they get to the new new land which is what we're getting ready to look at right here and so we look at this and it says saying to the children when you come into the land which i give you you then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord. Where are you? Verse 2. Oh. Chapter 25. Notice that it wasn't if you get there, but when you get there. You're, the land will keep a Sabbath. Every, six, every seventh year, the Jews were not to tend their fields. This is kind of an amazing thought. God pushed crop, rota uh, crop rotation on them you know, from the very beginning. If you study crop rotation and everything, uh, I remember when I was living in Virginia, the, the farmer that, I, that ran the fields around us, he would stop, not plow one of his fields each year, you know, with, and leave it fallow so that it would, would be able to replenish. There's a couple of things you're trying to accomplish when they don't plow their field. One is to not deplete the nourishment from the ground. Okay, now in our day, we know that if you plant different certain types of plants, you can not deplete your, your soil and you don't have to leave it fallow. Okay, uh, you, you know, you plant corn and then you plant, you know, onions, you know, you, you use different things that take out different nutrients from your soil. The other thing that it would also prevent is diseases that are particular to certain plants. Okay. If you get a disease that runs in your plant and then you plant something else in there, the chances of the disease remaining dwindles. Okay? Garlic. Garlic. Huh? Garlic does a lot of it kills all the uh, bugs and stuff. What do you just Garlic. 
I don't know if it does it in the field, but it does it in the, in I mean, the body. In, so. in little garden. Yeah. But this was God's plan for them that they were going to go in and they were going to keep the land uh, healthy by, for, by for every seventh year stopping their crop rotation. So when the people were sent into Babylon, they were sent into captivity into Babylon for seven years because they had missed and not done what they were supposed to do with the land of the Sabbath. And, and God said, you haven't kept the land Sabbath for I think it was 100 years or whatever it was. Uh, and therefore, you've missed this many Sabbaths. You are going to... 70 years. You know, the 70 years worth of Sabbaths, your land is now going to rest for the 70 years that it was supposed to. So it would have been 490, one year for each Sabbath. Uh, so they were in captivity for four, you know, they'd got, been in the land for 490 years. They hadn't kept the land Sabbath. And God said, okay, you're going into captivity and the land, the land will be kept, will keep its Sabbaths. And they were in captivity for 70 years before Daniel was reading his book and said, oh, we're going to be captured and we're getting ready to go back home because <laughs> he was reading the, reading the scriptures. Uh, so, so that means that's like really like almost a couple generations. For 70 years? Yeah. Well, it was... I mean, because... Yeah, one, one full generation yeah. or, you know, two practical generations for adult life. But God said you didn't do what you were supposed to. I'm sending you to this land and every seven years you're going to just let the land rest very much just like he said to us you're going to work for six days and you're going to rest for one and if we don't do it we pay the price if we don't rest once in a while we will pay the price physically emotionally psychologically uh psychologists call it you know running running with no margin you've got to take time off and be able just to rest and relax and workaholics can work for a long time, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And if they're bent toward out workaholism, they can do it. But eventually, even they will come crashing down and become irritable. I, I did it one time. I worked for some, you know, four months without, without a day off. And we're talking long days. And I got very irritable toward the end of that time. And... You know, very upset. I, it might have been longer. It might have been almost a year. I don't know how many years I worked without a break of any kind. The day off I had, I had to clean house, go shopping, and do all the other things. And because half the time the kids wanted to spend the weekend with me, and I let them stay Friday night. Mm -hmm. They didn't go home till noon Saturday. And you're probably paying the price for having uh, done that. That might be why I'm so tired all the time now. Yeah, you, you are going to pay the price. There is always a consequence mm -hmm. to what you do. I, I worked when I was in Bible school. I slept 20 hours a week for, for two years. That's a week, not just, you know. Yeah, that's not uh, it's not enough. Mm -mm. Uh, and I have really paid with it. My sleep cycles have been so messed up ever since that period of time that I still am paying for that. And so there's always a consequence. When you break God's rules, you break the way you're supposed to do things, you break the cycles of the body, you are going to pay for it somewhere, somewhere so, down the line. That means if you do work kind of like on Sunday, but not really, to me, I don't really call it work, but I guess it would be work. If you do stuff around your house, would that be called work? 
Now, God's definition it was. God said they weren't even to light a fire and cook on the Sabbath. Okay, so. Because I used to be really good growing up. I went to work on Sunday, but now I kind of like food. Now there is great debate on if you're doing something that you absolutely love, are you working? I will go to what Del Tackett said in the Truth Project. He said that God gave us the Sabbath so that we would sit down. And he said God's purpose was to have you quit having fun and concentrate on him. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're supposed there you are supposed to rest. And that's why there's this big question mark. Well, I'm really I love my work so much it's not work. But are you really ever totally backed down where you're not having to concentrate on anything and make decisions and and this is where, and I'm not going to get legalistic about the Sabbath and everything, but I'm just saying, if you do not do this, there is a problem. You've got to have a place where you just say, this is my day. You know, and for me, the hard thing for me is to decide the games and stuff that I like are games that you have to think. You know, I like chess. I like strategy games where you're trying to outmaneuver something, especially when it's a computer you're trying to outmaneuver. That's, you're concentrating. Uh, That's game, not work. You know, game. So this this is a question though because it's it's I'm I'm an administrator in what I like to work in, but my games that I like use my administrative skills to play the game. So am I working or am I relaxing? Is a big question mark. You know, would would because I'm doing the same thing I would normally do in an administrative position be considered work even though it's on a game environment? How about this life? There's days at my shop when I do nothing because nobody shows up. But then sometimes on Sunday is when people show up. But I figure, well, I have worked all week. The qu answer to this I is... I know, I know. Hey, that's the answer to this is that everybody's going to have to talk to God on where they're, they're going to be because we are not bound, because Jesus fulfilled the law, we are not bound by the laws. But I make this statement because we need rest. Now, how we define that as rest is going to be between us and God. Yeah. Uh, but if somebody tells me that they're working every day of the week and and but they're, they're enjoying it, they enjoy their work so much that it's not that it's not work. I'm going to say they've got a problem because there's not downtime. There's not and but it's again between them and God. I'm not going to sit there and judge them. You're not keeping a Sabbath. Well, what I'm doing too is on Sunday I don't try to advertise it. I really don't have open signs, but if people come in, it's more like a museum. I'm not looking around, but if they buy something, I'm not going to say no. Right. I'm not pushing it, and so sometimes because I haven't made any money all week, I sometimes make good money on Sunday, and then I feel guilty because I know you're not supposed to make money. On and Sunday. weekends for you, as with the type of but, thing and tourism, is probably going to be your best day. So you need to plan on taking a day off somewhere in the middle. My day, my day off as a pastor is not Sunday. Yeah, you know, I work very hard on a Sunday. You know, it's minutes before class was my rest. I said I got 15 minutes to just relax and rest and pray. And just, I need more than 15 minutes usually, but but, but you understand. So my day off, pretty much, and most pastors will take Monday off. Yeah, it's a day after they've done their their hardest day, or and as most people think, that's the one day a week that they work, but. <laughs> It's amazing how many people think the pastors only work one day a week. You know, it's you got plenty of time to do all this stuff. You only work one day. 
it's like Monday is a slow day for me, and I usually yeah. think that is a like hour day spread out the whole week. It's a slow day for everybody here. So Monday, I usually just yeah. You know but, what? For me, as a Sunday school teacher, and I'm not a pastor. I'm just a Sunday school teacher. It's harder. It's hard work. It's draining. I'm totally exhausted on Mondays and sometimes Tuesday too. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. But I want to share with you, it's more exhausting when there's no child that comes. <laughs> because all this energy is built up and then there's nowhere to go but a rock wall. I, I can't let go what I've worked so hard on all week to give. Well, that's the thing with me all week, sometimes all week I have nobody and I'm tired from doing nothing. But then when somebody comes, it's always harder. It's always harder. So, yeah, but to not have your expectation work way up here and then bam. But the hardest thing is, like I say, I don't want to make it. You don't want to make it a legalistic thing, but you do need to look at it and say, God, I need the rest. What you know? What is what is what is good and what is bad? Because you start getting into the legalism about it, and you get to be the Jews with you know forty pages on what you yeah. can and can't do, you know, to be work, and. That gets too extreme. You know, that gets too extreme. You know, I can't open a I can't open a cabinet because it's work. You know, I can't open a box of cereal because it's work. Uh, I can't cover the food I cooked yesterday. Like, well, that's allowed. I understand, like what you say, God has a per, each person is different, mm -hmm. yeah. and that's how I. He's got his overseeing rules, and we need to follow his overseeing rules. And if you if you don't if you don't take time off, you will pay for it somewhere along your lifetime, and possibly even a short time. Because if you don't rest, you also the average person who doesn't rest gets very short and ang you know easily angered and and you know they get snippy with people because they are just too tired. Their body gets sick. The body the body eventually will say, uh, "Mind, you don't want to rest, but we're just we're just shutting down." Okay, you you may you may want to keep going, but we're just going to shut down for a while, and you are going to rest. You may try you may try to go with your mind busy, but we're going to just shut down and and say, okay, we're done. Or you get pneumonia or something. Or yeah, something something that makes you makes you sit down. But for the very thing about this, if the per, if the individual is not going to keep the Sabbath day, they also weren't going to keep the Sabbath year. Mm. Okay. And if you weren't going to keep the Sabbath year, you obviously probably weren't going to keep the Sabbath day. I mean, it was either you want to be obedient to God or not. And here God is saying, you are, your, your fields will rest every seven years. And it's a, it's a very simple crop rotation. You know, it's not a perfect crop rotation, but it was a very simple one. And as I say, with science now, we know what plants that we can put in there. And, but even with that, they also recommend after a certain period of time that your field should be rested and not planted. Now you could you know, run it for eight years or something, and then you have to rest it. But but you know, but there is that point where you have to rest your rest your fields. Now we're trying to get around it nowadays with all the chemically induced fertilizers we put to revitalize our soils and everything. But you know, and that's not good. Uh, and God says, you know, on that seventh year, you're not you're not going to sow. You're not, and you're not going to reap what it is but it said that it will be food for you now so you can go out and you can eat some of the food but you would not be able to go out and harvest your crop you know you want an apple or two you go out and take a couple apples but you were not allowed to go and, and fill bushels and bushels full of apples because 
that was not not what you were to do. Yeah, it was to be okay. Verse eight, and you shall number seven Sabbaths of years unto you, seven times seven years, and the space of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto unto you forty nine years, and you shall cause the trumpet to, of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month of the day of atonement, which you shall make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. And you shall hallow the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto the inhabitants thereof. And it shall be a jubilee unto you, and you shall return every man to his, unto his possessions, and you shall return every family man to his family. A jubilee shall be the fiftieth year unto you, and you shall not sow, neither reap that which grows of itself, nor gather the grapes in it of your wines undressed. For the, it is the jubilee, it is holy unto you. You shall eat the increase thereof, thereof out of the field. In, that, in the year that, of this jubilee, you shall return every man unto his possessions. And if you sell aught unto your neighbor or buys aught of your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. According to the number of the years after the jubilee, shall shall buy your neighbor and acquire unto your number of years of the fruits which he sells unto you. According to the multitude of the years, you shall increase the price thereof. According to the fewness of the years, you shall diminish the price thereof. For according to the number of years of the fruits that does he sell unto you, ye shall not therefore oppress one another, but, thou, but you shall fear the Lord, for I am the Lord your God. The year of Jubilee. This is very unique for the, to the Jews that God's given this command. Every 50th year, the first part was it was a special Sabbath, okay? So it was, you all of a sudden had two Sabbath years in a row. You had your seven year and then your 50th year, which is not divisible by seven, so it would be your 50th year was a Sabbath. You did not plant your fields again. So now for two years in a row, you're not planting your fields when it comes to the year of the Jubilee. All right, so that's your first big deal. You're not planting for two years in your, in your field. Now notice that, again, you could go out and you could eat from the field, okay? You could go out and pick enough beans to make a pot of beans, you know, but you could not go and pick bushels of beans and store them, all right? On the, on the Sabbath year and this year of Jubilee, and you couldn't have planted them in the first place. They would have to have grown wild. So you've, you're, what little food you are getting has to be wild food, all right? Uh, which is great for fruits and, and trees and, vine and vineyards. Not so good when you're thinking about uh, potatoes and onions and tomato and uh, squash and those kind of things that have to be planted every year. Right. So you're going to have plenty of fruit and, and, and vines, and you'll have some of the leftovers that kind of fell into the ground and grew wild, you know, in your field, whatever you planted last in your field. How do you know about squash? Tomatoes, wood, onions will receive themselves too because they bloom, but they have to be how many years old before they bloom? I don't know. You got me. One? I think they'll grow in one. They, but have, to, they have to grow and you have to let them see, grow to seed in one. But so you can't just take it right there. So this is... This is a big deal. They're going to blow the shofars on the 10th day of the seventh month, the Day of Atonement, and it's going to be the year of Jubilee. Now, what also happens on the Day of Atonement? Anybody remember? What, first off, what does atonement mean? To be made one with God. Okay. And the Day of Atonement is 
the day when they'd offer the sacrifice and the forgiveness of sins occurred. It is then also every 50th year is going to be the day that freedom and liberty is pronounced to all the people. And this is a very precious thing that, they, that God said because when he, when he brought in this day of Jubilee, the land was never sold permanently. Your family land was never sold permanently under God. The 50 years of Jubilee would always bring it back to you. But the neat thing is the buyer, buyer beware, he knew that when he bought it. But it already had the provisions in here for it. Okay, we'll get to, as we get back into that, we'll see that provision was already put there. I mean, if you only had one year to Jubilee, you only paid a very small amount of money for that land. Because you were only going to use it for one year. If you bought it on the first day after Jubilee, you would pay more for it because you're going to use it for 50 years. Okay. So basically you're leasing it. You're basically leasing it. And we're going to find out that they based the lease on what they expected the productivity of the land to be. Oh, wow. Okay. Time and, the, and productivity. Time and productivity. So if you thought you were going to get $1,000 worth of produce every year out of that land and you bought it on the first year before Jubilee, you'd pay $49,000 for it, you know, $1,000 per, per year. If you were in the last year, you'd spend $1,000, you know, because you're only going to get 1000 you know, and then we'll see other provisions that were brought in from that. So, but in the year of Jubilee, in verse 10, it says, You shall hallow the 50th day and proclaim liberty throughout all the land and to all the inhabitants. It is the Jubilee unto you, and you shall return every man his possessions, and you shall return every man to his family. So even when you bought, the person got, got into financial trouble and had to sell possessions. Again, you were almost just leasing the possessions from them because they were his. And you were going to return them at the end of at the Jubilee year. If they sold themselves into servitude, the longest they could sell themselves into servitude would be 50 years. Okay, and usually it was much shorter, but I mean, the longest period of time it could be was you sold yourself on the day one after the year of Jubilee would be 49 years, and then you'd on the 50th year you would be released. Okay, God is. The year of Jubilee was a way to protect the poor from being totally uh, cheated. You could be poor, you need help, and you could be, and you were going to be guaranteed a release date. It also forced the people that could to treat each other right. The, well, it made it made you treat each other right. Yeah. Uh, you know, you 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 weren't out there to say, well, you're, you're poor, you're now my slave for life, which was the way most nations worked. Okay. Yeah. What did Jubilee mean? Celebration. What celebration? It was it was liberty. Uh, on that day, any servant that you had bought was released. Any land that you had paid for for somebody that was poor was returned to them. Now there is an exception we're going to get into on this, but any land you would they would get back. Because God said that the land belonged to each tribe and each family had its portion of land that was given to them. And it was their land. And this is the big problem right now in Israel is that the Israelites consider it their land. God gave it to them. 
It was apportioned to them in the days of Joshua, and it is their land. From Egypt, all the way up to by the Euphrates River, all the way from the Mediterranean to east of the Jordan, where they took the two and a half tribes settled on the east side of the Jordan. Okay, the Jews consider it their land. It, you know, God gave it to them. It was apportioned to them in the days of Joshua. David got all that land as a possession during his kingdom, his rule. Solomon had it all, and that was the only time they had all of it. Is that Manasseh and Benjamin on that side or no? You had, uh, no, Benjamin's down on the south side. Uh, half tribe of Manasseh, Ephraim, and uh, I don't remember the other one, the last one. Yeah. I guess I'll have to look at the calendar. We and I have maps. Gad. Gad, Reuben, and half tribe of Manasseh are on the east side of the Jordan. All right. So the year of Jubilee, this is a big deal. They weren't going to plant their fields two years in a row. The people were going to be restored to their land. Uh, possessions were returned to people. This is a celebration. And note that it happens on the Day of Atonement, the day that they're forgiven of their sins. As a nation, is the same day they're going to release everybody. The Day of Atonement is going to be, as far as we understand, and we've been talking about the day that Jesus returns and touches onto the Mount of Olives and starts the rule, starts putting everything under his rule. Okay, it's one of the fall feasts. The king's return, the king set, declares freedom to his people and creates and ends war. And, and, and very shortly thereafter, the millennial kingdom is established. Okay, big events happen on the Day of Atonement. And here we are. The so, so far as the ram's horns blow all through the country, letting them know that it is the day of jubilee. Mm -hmm. The day of jubilee, the captives released. That was every 50 years. Every 50 years. Every 50 years. I wondered about that years ago, and I did, again, I forgot about it, 49. What happens on the 50th year? You have your jubilee. I have your jubilee. You know, I said it because my sister lives on the street with for all, and it's named jubilee. Uh, but I was going to tell her that, you know what jubilee stands for? Well, it means it means celebration, but yeah, <laughs> but the jubilee of the fiftieth, you shall not sow, you shall not reap, you you, you reap that which grows, you uh, you will not gather in your grapes. It is a holy day, you know, holy day, a holy year actually, but it's going to be a holy year, and another year where you're not not harvesting. So you're not even allowed to walk out there like my grapes are growing wild with the ground right now. You could pick the grapes that are growing wild and eat them that that time. But not a big But you couldn't go harvest a whole bunch of bushels of and them and them. and sell them or even put them in your house for, you know, for because that would be called reaping and harvesting. You could not do that. You could go out and say, "Okay, we're going to feed my family and I need, you know, a quart, I need quarter, uh, you know, a quarter, a quart of uh, green beans, and I need seven ears of corn, and you could bring those in and use them, but you couldn't go in and say, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go harvest, uh, 
you know, 80, 80 ears of corn so I don't have to go out again the rest of the, <laughs> the rest of the summer. Oh, you couldn't do that anyway. <laughs> well, if your field was big enough, you could. But so you could eat thereof, and it says, and if you sold aught unto your neighbor or bought aught of your neighbor's land, it shall be, you shall not oppress them. You are not to take advantage of them. Okay? And this goes both ways. Okay, and this is what we were talking about. It goes both ways. If you're only one year from the Jubilee, you're not going to go and say, yeah, I'll sell you my land for a million dollars and I'll get it back next year. Now, that would be you oppressing them. By the same token, they're not going to say, well, I've only got one year. I'm only going to give you $5 because I'm going to lose it next, you know, next year. It had to be equitable exchange for it, yeah, and that's why... dollars you know, Huh? You know, they buy things for a dollar. Yeah. But that's why it had to be equitable. And if you were, you know, you couldn't go to them and say, you know, well, you got 49 years and I'm only going to let you buy, you know, you know, I'm only going to buy you for, you know, buy your services for $1,000 for 50 years. No, that wasn't going to work. You know, it's, you're going to, no, you got 50 years worth of work. You're going to give me, 50 years worth you know, 50 years worth of wage and, then, and whatever they calculated wage to be at that time. Uh, so it was to be equitable. It was nobody was supposed to take advantage of each other. And it was to be very much. How much time is left? We, we take that out. And it says, according, in verse uh, 15, according to the number of years after Jubilee, you shall buy of your neighbor, and according to the number of the years of the fruits, you shall, he shall sell unto you. And that again, you look at how valuable is the land. Okay? Is it a very productive piece? You know, is it all mountains and I can't do anything with it except feed sheep? Okay, how much money do I get by feeding those sheep? Is it in the valley and there's a river running next door to it and it produces a whole lot of grain? Okay, that more money for. Okay, if I'm a farmer buying a rocky patch of ground that's not going to be worth anything to me, then I, that would be a lower price. Again, how productive is it going to be? Okay, if it's the mountainside and I'm going to raise goats, then that's more productive than, than some other spot that you know, has cliff. Yeah. So, in all of this, according to the number of years, you shall increase the price thereof, and according to the fewness of the years, you shall diminish the price thereof. According to the number of the years of the fruits, you shall sell unto you. Again, it's just, it repeats that same thing. It's how profitable is it going to be? You're allowed to make your money back. Okay, the idea wasn't you're going to sell, the, you know, that you were going to buy this land and lose. You know, right. you were supposed to be able to make a little bit of money. I mean, you weren't to gouge them or anything, but you were to make profit on it. I helped you, but I had to make a profit so that I helped me too. And obviously, if the person's selling their land because they couldn't make a make it make it produce, they're they're better off by having the money. And the other guy gets the get hopefully does good and gets a little more out of the land than you would have. And so you both win in the long run. And in the end of 50 years, you get your land back. Uh, so, or you know, the, the Jubilee. So, and this is that idea. And this is really, when you think about it, God has got a good plan here. You know, nobody's to take advantage of one another. The only problem is the people are sinners. <laughs> and they're not going to follow God's way of doing things. And they're not going to return. A lot of times they didn't return things at the Jubilee and... And they didn't didn't honor the non-planting and all the stuff that goes involved in this. And God says you're going to do this, and man says no, we're going to do it my way because it just doesn't make sense, God. It doesn't make sense not to uh, you know plant my field. How am I going to how am I going to feed my people? How am I going to make money that year? And uh, God's saying you trust me. 
you trust me. How hard is it to really trust God sometimes? To just be able to say, God, I just don't understand, but you're the one that's going to provide because you said you will. God says he's going to provide all of our needs, and what if many of us do all the time? We worry about how we're going to, how we're going to get our needs taken care of. Mm-hmm. And usually we worry because we've been buying all the wants and not worrying about the needs until it was too late. Right. Uh, and then we do have to be worried because God gave us the money to pay for our needs and we wasted it. Then we might have to be a little more concerned. But if you're being very frugal with your money and very careful, God provides what we need. It's always been amazing to me to watch even when I had money, him do the same thing, and now that I don't have money, it's really amazing to watch him provide for the needs. And you, you know, I look at my, I looked at my the red ink at the end of my month, and I'm going, okay, God, there's a bunch of bills you have to uh, pay this month. And God almost always pays all the, all the red ink for me every month. And it, it's an amazing thing that he does, and it's I don't know how he does it half the time. I look at. I look at what I got in, and I go, how did, it, how did all the bills get paid? And I, I give my tithes and my offerings. And you know, I am, I am of, the, of the school of thought that God demands the tithe. The tithe belongs to God, and, and the blessing comes on the offering. That's my personal belief, because God says, bring all your tithes and offerings into the storehouse and see if I don't give you back, shake, pressed down, shaken together. That means a lot, because... Like me, like I say, like a couple of times, like for a couple of weeks, I don't do anything, but then I keep praying, like, God, I have to do this and this and this, and it's good, and it turns up. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean we just sit around and say, God, I'm waiting no. for you to provide for me, God, and look around. No, we do what we can. We we do the extra jobs. We we work a little harder in some things, but God is ultimately responsible for the increase, and I'm not to sit there and worry about where's this job coming from. Now, if I'm rejecting jobs out there, you know, say, well, I can't do that, I can't do this, and then I get to the end of the month and have red, red ink on the, on the table, that's my fault for not taking the advantage of the jobs that he gave me an opportunity to do. But it's so critical for us to be there. And God says, if we tithe, if we do nothing but tithe, he will honor the tithe and he'll stretch that 90% and make sure you get 100 and usually 110 or 120%. You give offerings beyond that, and God truly starts saying, well, wow. Well, what really helps me out a lot is that I usually don't want to let go of things. And now, since I'm letting go of things, like, I'm, it's amazing. I mean, there's things that, you know, I just don't want to let go or dig into. But now, <laughs> I'm not afraid to. I'll do it because I know I'm going to get it back. I will. I don't care when, but I will get it back. Mm-hmm. And so that this is what's helping me out a lot is letting go of things. Yep. And because it's all God's anyway. Yeah. And, and the more we realize it. that everything belongs to God, and I'm just the one, his steward, using it. I'm just if he wants it, I'm to give it back to him. Mm-hmm. And if he wants it, he's going to give me something better than what I gave up. And it's very amazing when you do this. You go, God, I really like this. I really don't want to give it up. But you really know that he's wanting to give you, give it up. And all of a sudden, you give it up, and there's something better. But like five years ago, there's no way I would have done a lot of things that I'm doing now. And to me, I always say, well, you know, I enjoy it long enough, but somebody else enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I think of things, and I never thought I would think that mm-hmm. way. That's good. Verse 18. Wherefore you shall do my statutes and keep my judgments and do them, 
and you shall dwell in the land in safety. The land shall yield her fruit, and you shall eat your fill and dwell therein in safety. And if you say, What shall we eat in the seventh year? Behold, we, sow, we shall not sow nor gather our increase. Then I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth fruit for three years. And you shall sow on the eighth year and eat of the old fruit until the ninth year, until her fruits come in, ye shall eat of the old store. So God is looking at this. He knows that there's going to be people out there that are going to say, well, I don't want to trust God and eat whatever, whatever stuff just grows out there wild. He goes, and God says, well, there's going to be somebody that's going to say, you know, well, how am I going to eat the next year? And God says, if you let it, if you're going to follow this, I will give you basically a bumper crop. I'm going to give you so much <laughs> that you're going to eat for the year that it's empty and then the following year. Because you've got to remember, you're planting your crops that you've got to go two years before you're going to get a harvest. And then if it's a year of Jubilee, you've got to go three years before you're going to. And he even mentioned that one. He goes, if you're really, really worried about me providing for you for those two years, I will command an increase to you that you don't have to worry about it. Now, how you're going to store food for three years, I don't know. Uh, you know but God says, I'm going to give you, if, that's, if you're really concerned about it, I'm going to give you enough of a crop <laughs> to survive for, three, for those three years. This is a pretty amazing thought that God gives. God has all kinds of places where he provides for people when they obey. Yeah. Later on, we're going to read about when they go to war, the, 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 the captains of the army were to say, who's afraid? If you're afraid, go home. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, goes, and then, who of you have just gotten married or just gotten engaged? Go home. You know, who has just built a house and, nobody, and haven't even had a chance to live in it yet? Go home. God cares about what we have spent our time getting ready for. What's his name? Huh? What's his name? Whose name? That was what the captains did for God. That's what they were told by God to tell, tell the people. Oh, I know he did one in particular about so. the lambs. Oh, that was Gideon, but Gideon, Gideon, Gideon went way beyond that. God purposely brought his army down to nothing to, so that they wouldn't say they did it. Yeah, that was Gideon that really took his army down to, to nothing. He says, if you keep my statutes and keep my, my, my judgments, you will dwell in the land in safety. This is the amazing thing that God has done. If we obey him, we have safety. It doesn't mean we don't have any troubles, any trials. But do you realize all the different testimonies and stories about how God has protected the Israelites and his own and other Christians as well. Uh, you know, we've got Elijah who who's trying to where the where they come to arrest him and the and uh, God kills the fifty men. Another come and said you got to come with it. And he kills them. You know, uh, God protects his people. Another time, I believe it was Elijah or Elijah. I don't remember which one, but they they were coming to arrest him and. And his servant's all nervous, and he goes, God, open his eyes, and they're around the army that's circling his house is an army of angels, okay, uh, circling that army, saying, yeah, what, what are you worried about? If God wants to destroy them, they're gone. Many times in, this, in the history of Israel, when in the, in the scriptures, they were talked about having prayed, and then these enemies will see the other enemies and run off and kill each other, 
Or another time, an entire valley full of the enemies is found dead the next morning because the death angel had gone through and, and wiped them out. Okay, God has protected his people when they have been obedient to him. When Israel was starting as a nation here in, in 47 and through the Six-Day War, the miracles that God did to protect his people. There are stories of the, of the enemies of Israel surrendering to two and three men because they saw angels all across the entire mountaintop. And it wasn't the Jews giving these messages. It was the, the captured soldiers that would say, and they'd go, well, why, you know, the UN would come in, why'd you surrender? Well, I wasn't going to fight all those angels. You know, miracles that God has done to protect his people. I remember the story of a missionary crossing a jungle that was full of, full of terror. We'd call them terrorists, but, you know, uh, you know, banditos. And he drove through by himself because he couldn't find anybody to go with him. And one of them met him later on and go, where'd you get that great big army that was with you? And he goes, what army? He goes, they had all these big guys all around you, you know, fully, fully armed, you know, and where'd you get them from? They were big. <laughs> he goes, I don't know, they're angels. You know, the things that God will do to keep us safe, if that's what he wants to have happen. What was the one that... Well, in Revelation, they're going to turn their weapons on Jesus when he returns. The Antichrist in the world. Won't do any good, but won't do any good. But they're going to turn turn to fight God. Uh, there are plenty of places where God has stepped in and said, doesn't matter, you, you've lost. Mm -hmm. All right? Because he steps in. And the old adage, if God is on your side, you and God is a majority. No matter what anybody thinks, you and God is a majority. And the, the thing you want to look at is when we look at the scriptures, here in America, we've got this mentality that the majority is always right. Okay? Uh, that's why we have elections, so the majority can pick the right person. The majority can get the right laws going in, the, you, know, the, you know, all of this. But every time we look through the scriptures, most of the time in the scriptures, the majority is wrong. Mm -hmm. It's those that are following God, and they're almost always in the minority, are the ones that are in the right. Okay. Like, if, what can God know? If God is with you, what can man do to you? Do to you? Do to you who can be against you? Who can be, who can against, be you? against you? Yeah. And this is where we are right now with the Supreme Court having decided that homosexual marriage is, well, technically all they said is that, that it's right. They, they think they've made a law, but the only one that can make a law is Congress, so they have not made a law, and this is where the problem is. Uh, everybody's treating it as if they made a law. All they did is make an opinion that it should be law. Did you see that thing on the news where that lady was in jail? The Kentucky, the Kentucky clerk. Uh, they put that judge in prison because she wouldn't. No, they put her in prison because she wouldn't. That's what I meant. They put yeah. the judge in prison. No, they, well, she was a clerk. Oh, she was. She was the head clerk. And you know, what really bothers me on that whole issue is how it's being reported that saying that she wouldn't issue license to homosexual couples and she would not issue any 
marriage certificates because she didn't want to be cited, cited, singled out. And her reasoning for it was is that Kentucky law said that she could not give a license to homosexual couples. No matter what the Supreme Court says, the Kentucky law says you can't. So she's standing on the law of the state rather than the opinion of the judges, which is not law. All they have done is issue an opinion because the only people that can make law is Congress. So anytime the judges say anything, it's not law. It's their opinion about something, and it means nothing until somebody makes a law. And it's really sad that they have forgotten what their job is. And it's really sad that Congress has forgotten what its job is. You know, and it just tells us how far our country's fallen and, where, and how far we are from being the country that was one that was a godly country. So, enough politics here. <laughs> but they shall eat in safety when they follow him. And, and it says, behold, if you say that, you know, what are we going to eat? Then God would send enough to eat for three years. That's a lot of food. 21 and 22. That's a lot of food that God get, you know, would provide for those who didn't trust him. But you know, that's what God will do for us. He will meet us where we're at. And this is what I like about God. If I have a great amount of faith, he's going to let me exercise my faith and live by faith. If I have no faith, he's going to do everything he can to make sure that I don't have to suffer because of my lack of faith. As long as I have some faith and I do what I'm supposed to do. Now, these guys were out there and go, they don't have enough faith that God's going to provide them for two, year, you know, two years, and they went out and they planted their fields on that seventh year. That field's probably not going to give them any harvest. And if they did it on the year of Jubilee as well, they're not going to get any harvest. And they wouldn't have gotten the bumper crop on the, on the first year. And the person who goes, well, God, I'm just going to trust you. It doesn't matter to me. If you give me the harvest, that's great. If you don't give me the harvest, that's great. You're going to, you're going to provide. You know, my wild grapes will give me enough to... Food, the, the apples and pear trees, the olive, the olives will give me plenty of oil. I'm not worried about it, then God wouldn't worry about giving you a bumper crop because your faith would maintain you. But God is wonderful. He will not allow a bigger problem hit to hit us than we can endure through the faith that we have in Him. Now, and this is what 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there hath no temptation overtaken you, but such that is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape. It's one very long verse. I, I know that. Corinthians, what? 10, 13. And this is one that God says, I am in control. I am in control of what happens to you. Now, the thing we've got to remember is the way of escape is to surrender my flesh and give, and give myself over to Jesus. Okay? He's not going to let my flesh be victorious. So in one sense, the test is enough that it's supposed to crush me if I try to do it on my own. But if I realize that I need God, I'll get through it. Now what, it, now what does that test mean for each person? How much faith did you start with? <laughs> How much trust did you start with? The greater your trust, the bigger the problem is because you're going to think, I can do it. The greater your natural skills are, the harder the test is going to be because it is going to be one that takes you to the limit of what you can do so that you have to turn to Jesus. 
For me, if it's an administrative test, it'll have to be pretty hard because I'm a good administrator. If God is saying, I'm going to test your ability to administrate, it'll be a big test. And most people going through that would say, man, I would have been torn up the first five people that quit the job in the middle of it. Okay? But God is saying, even if you don't have the faith, if you don't have the faith, just honor me and I will give you the year before enough to, to get through. That verse, I will never forget the year 207. That verse, I kept saying, and I learned it, and I learned it because I had this big, big problem. That verse got me out of it. Mm -hmm. That verse got me out of it. What verse? First Corinthians. 10 13. 10 13. Oh, yeah, Revelation 18. Yeah, that verse coming from Andrew. Got his faith on you a lot. I know. Yeah. I know that. I kept saying, 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 saying. Like, bring, and I'll never forget that because it saved me. I'll, I, 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 I've said the blood a lot. No temptation will overcome me, that, but what is caught, how do you say it? Common to man? Common to man. The very first part of it. <laughs> but this, this is why it's important for us to put God's word in our heart, because there are certain things that will just stand out and protect us. When I'm going through hard times, number one, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 pops into my mind. Yeah. You know, then I get into when bad things are happening all around me in my life, all things work together for good. Mm -hmm. And then I go to one of the, which is becoming my favorite. I mean, I learned it when I was 14 years old, Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live according to the faith of Christ Jesus. 2.20. 2.20. And I never understood that verse until about the last probably five to ten years. I mean, I understood you died and you lived and all that, but I have not understood the power of that verse until probably the last decade. I am crucified. My flesh is crucified. My desires are crucified. And because they're crucified, God lives through me, ministers to people through me, speaks through me, acts through me, because he's crucified my flesh. And it's no longer me doing anything. It is so powerful. And it leads into the rewards at the Bema Seat. Anything that I have done in my flesh, even if it is good, will burn. Mm -hmm. Because it's my flesh. Wood, hay, and stubble. Stubble is absolutely worthless. It doesn't go, it isn't good for anything. Hay is good for feeding animals and, and making bricks and that kind of stuff. Wood is pretty substantial. You can make some pretty good things out of wood. Right. Furniture. I can do good things in my flesh. People might even get blessed when I do things in my flesh. They might even be taught spiritual things because of what I know in my flesh, because God's word won't return void. They get rewarded because they, they, they got the spirit. I lose it because I did it in my flesh. It's wood, hay, and stubble, and it all burns. The only thing that will survive is what I let God do. Gold, silver, and precious gems that God brings in by doing the work through me. My, I am crucified with Christ. Yet I live and God works through me. And the rewards come by him working through me. I shared this with one of, my pa one of the pastors at a pastor thing. Go, how many of us as pastors are going to have a lot of good things that we've done? 
they're going to burn up because we did them in the flesh and not through the Spirit. How many times have we stood up on Sunday morning because we had to stand up on Sunday morning because that's what we're paid to do and delivered a message and it might even have been a good message because I know the Word of God. But it wasn't a spirit message. Ha ha, I don't get paid. <laughs> <laughs> even as a Sunday school teacher, but... <laughs> you know, we do something because we have to do it. Yeah. Now, my job, I'm a Sunday school teacher, I'm a Bible studies teacher, I'm whatever it might be, and I've got to do this. Now, I know it was supposed to be in the Spirit, I know the Spirit is supposed to lead it and is supposed to be doing it, but I've got to do this because I'm this, that, or the other thing. It is so easy sometimes to do things that we do in the flesh. And God is saying, what faith do you have? What is your level of faith? And it's going to be a test on our level of faith. I, I study hard for the times that I teach. Yeah. Don't quite study as much as I used to because I'm knowing more and more of the scriptures. I used to study 15 to 20 hours for any, any time I spoke. Now it's 5 to 10 hours because I've got a good grasp on things and I know where things are. I'm not having to find as much. But I'm still going to spend a lot of time preparing for messages. Because I want it to be the spirit having something to use to, to give. And the worst thing you want is somebody re, re, reusing messages that they've, you know, he's been a pastor for 20 years and he's got five years of messages. <laughs> you know, and he keeps repeating them. Every, he gets to the end, he starts all over again. I had a Bible. I get a Sunday school And I'm not telling you who. It wasn't Brother Dennis. In my Bible, brother so-and-so, date, year, brother so-and-so, date, next year, brother so-and-so. I'm like, okay, is this out of a book or what? How's he doing this? Because the message I took notes on was the same message, too. You had very good notes, I guess. Uh, and that, and, and we, and, but you catch on to it. The people who are spiritual catch on because they're not being fed anymore. They're hearing, they're hearing the same thing over and over again. And one thing you'll note when I'm teaching is there's patterns all through this because that's what God is working on my life in, and you're going to hear the same things over a period of time. But you're not going to hear them a year from now because God is changing. Right. You know, and you know, you'll find, you know, that I'm on grace or I'm on mercy, you know, because it's the side studies that I'm doing and they're going to come out because that's what I'm, that's what I'm thinking about. And one of the, one of the pastors on the, on the radio that I like listening to said that we all need to get to a place where we're able to study on our own, get our own meaning out of the word, because you could be sitting under a pastor who's giving you great lessons, great teachings, but they're always flavored by what they are being taught with at that point. What's important to them overall. And not that it's bad. It's not, not, it's not necessarily bad. But when you're having a regurgitated message from their study, you're getting what they think is important. And so we all need to get to the place where we're studying on our own. You know, it doesn't say totally get rid of your pastors and teachers, but it says... You need that person to help you see, you know, to learn how to study, but you need to be in saying, God, what do I need to learn? How do, what is important to 
me. And that's why the sharing comes out amongst people and say, yeah, you know what God, look at what God showed me and it's important to you. And just because it's important to you makes it very special as you're telling somebody. And whether they think it's important or not really doesn't matter. But if you're excited about it, they'll get excited about it a little bit. I had a, I had a manager back when before I was a pastor. He goes, because I knew you, when he found out I was a pastor, he goes, I knew you'd be a pastor because every time you talked about God, you were animated. You, were, you, you had life when you talked about God. He goes, you, you handled all these other subjects okay, but when you talked about God, you could tell that it was real and important and vital. We need to get to that point. When we, share, when we see what God's sharing with us, and I've been thinking about this. I'm, I'm going to figure out when to do it, but we're going to do the, the session that I do on how to study the Bible because I want people to learn because the, it's good that I've got people reading. You know, follow the schedule. Learn to read. That's a great start. But to learn to study is that next step. Are you talking about the class I took with yeah. you? Oh, my goodness. It's good. I'll take it again. <laughs> but it, it teaches you different ways to study the strengths and weaknesses of each of those ways and and, but you know, it gives you the tools that you can dig in deep to the scriptures. And it's important, the deeper you can get. You know, and as I've said, you know, I've shared this. When I was a teenager, I'd go to God because I didn't know how to use the tools. I, I mean, I studied and all of that, and I learned, and I cross-indexed things. But there would be times when I'd go, God, I just need to understand this verse. You know, Pastor so-and-so said it meant this. Pastor so-and-so said it meant this. This church is saying it meant this. This other church said it meant this. I need to know what it means. And the Holy Spirit taught me what it meant in several occasions, at least four or five that I can remember. Then I got to where I learned to use the study tools, and, I, and you know what? I found out that the Holy Spirit was right, but now I could prove it. It wasn't just God told me this, but here, here's the proofs. <laughs> You know, and lay them out for people. But if you know nothing else, but when you're studying the Bible, the, the most important tool that you have for studying the Bible is prayer and the Holy Spirit. If you have those two, you will understand the scriptures. You may not be able to prove that you understand them, but you will understand the scriptures because the Spirit will give you the lessons if you teach you if you want to be taught. You specifically say, God, I don't understand this. I need to understand this. You know, you know, take you to other verses or whatever. The Holy Spirit will just impress on your heart what it means. And then you go to a pastor or a teacher who knows how to get into it and say, this is what I, this is what I learned and you know, this is what God showed me. And, and they go, okay, good. That's, you're, right, you're right there. And as you're listening to teachers you're going to, and you get more into God's word, the more you're going to be able to just have alarm bells go off in your head when somebody teaches something wrong. I listen to a very solid Christian channel when I listen, both here and in Kingman. Every once in a while, one of these pastors will say something that is not accurate. Now, I'm, I'm not saying he's trying on purpose to mix everybody up and lead them down the wrong path, but every once in a while, they'll say something that isn't just completely right, and in the back of my mind is, how could this guy say this? I like this pastor. You know, what did he say that for? You know, but it immediately triggers in my mind false teaching. We need to get into the word off, uh, well enough that we can say, you know, I had one pastor. He goes, "You should be." You know, this was back in the days of Lost in Space. Was you know, he was using this. He goes, you know, in the back of your head when you hear a false doctrine, you should have this alarm going: Danger, Will Robinson! Danger, Will Robinson! <laughs> Yeah, but it's true, you know, and it really is that we should have that 
alarm go off in our head that says, we may not know what it was that was wrong or, or, or anything, but there should be an alarm saying, not right. Not, not doctor, not biblical, not right. And be able to say, okay, God, help me now know what wasn't right. And, and seek the answer and find out. Be Berean, study the scripture. And I've said that over and over. I don't want people to believe what it says just because I say, say it. I've been studying for 40 years and I usually know what I'm talking about. But every once in a while, I can give you something that's not right. I know, having listened to these teachers that I like I, and, and hear them say something that's wrong, I know that I'm going to do the same thing at some point. Not on purpose, not because I haven't studied, but just because, number one, I might say it wrong. And you might not. And I might not know it. Right. Yeah. I am. <laughs> you sure I am? <laughs> you make Nobody's perfect. Yeah, so we want people to always search the scriptures. Be Bereans. Look, look over the scriptures. And if I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times. If you ever sit down around a pastor or a teacher that says, believe it because I say it, Don't get away from that person. Yeah. They may be right at that point, but they're building a relationship that will take you down the wrong path because of saying, depend on me. They're saying, basically, they're saying, I'm perfect. You can believe everything I say, and I'll never be wrong. And that's a scary place to be. Yep, Jim Jones took them down that path. Been a number, number of number of people that have done that kind of stuff. All right, let's close in prayer, and we'll come back to the finish this uh, year of jubilee next week. Lord, we just thank for this day. We thank you for your love, your care, Lord. We ask that you always give us guidance. That we listen to your spirit and, and look for the truth and all, and and the spirit will guide us into all truth. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. But you know. I